times. <laughs> no, I, it, I'm only kidding you, man. It's good, to, it's good to see that, you know, that we have, you know, multiple uses of and talents and gifts, so I appreciate that. Well, hey, do me a favor. Open up to Matthew chapter 1 today. Matthew chapter 1, and over the next few weeks, ending on Christmas Eve, I am doing a series, Christmas, Eve, uh, Christmas series entitled, Look Who's Coming to Christmas. And, uh, you know, this uh, Christmas, how many of you will be having family um, either to your house or you'll be going to a family get-together, okay? Um, don't raise your hands if, in case they'd be watching. Um, do you have any family members that you're like, I don't want to see them, okay? <laughs> JR just like, I do. <laughs> He's just calling them out, man. You know, um, reality is, I, I'm sure a lot of us would love it if we had a family that was just like the Cleavers. You know, leave the, leave the beaver, man. The Cleavers had it together. But how many of you know most of us probably have families more like the Griswolds? Anybody, anybody, remember Christmas vacation, okay? That family was messed up. Anybody got a Cousin Eddie that shows up and you're like, oh, I don't want Cousin Eddie showing up, all right? Reality is we have family members that, 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 that we just, wow, they show up and arguments ensue. They show up and embarrass the family, okay? We probably have a family tree that if you were to look back on, you're like, oh, Man, I, I, I would rather put them in the closet and leave them there, okay? Um, anybody ever do Ancestry.com and you find some things out about your family? Now, when you watch those TV commercials, it seems like everybody has great people in their family. I really wish that, that, that commercial would just so, I have an axe murderer. I never knew it. <laughs> you know, over the past several years, I've been learning things about my family and, um, and, and I just was like, I'm like, wow, you know, um, for example, my great grandfather, I've always known him. And like if they invite me and Paula and our family to the Shannon family reunion, it's in honor of A.B. Shannon. I never knew what A.B. stood for. It was just A.B. Until I found out through Ancestry.com that his name was Arthur Beveridge. <laughs> Who does that? Arthur Beveridge, stick with A.B. Now I understood why he went with A.B. Because, no, I'm Arthur Beveridge, okay? Um, but I have found out that, you know, um, I had a lot of alcoholics in my family. Um, when my grandma died, I mean, this, this was my, my the spiritual matriarch of our family. And that's all I knew her of was my grandma Marion and my grandpa Bill. And uh, when she died, I found out that she actually had an affair with my grandpa, Bill. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? You know, the closet's being opened and skeletons are being revealed. I found out last year um, that, and we went out to uh, Maryland to a Confederate cemetery to try to find a great, great, great grandfather that I had who was a Confederate soldier. You know, and, and was held as a Confederate prisoner in a Union prison. And I'm like, wow, Confederate soldier. Like, do I really want that known? Well, here's the thing. We're going to be looking at 
chapter 1 in Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus. And what we're going to discover is um, Jesus' family, who's coming to Christmas, um, had a lot of skeletons in the closet, okay? In fact, I'm entitling, you know, as I said, the title of the Christmas series is Look Who's Coming to Christmas. And, and today's message is entitled, Look Who's Coming to Christmas, The Failures, the Far-Fetched, and the Forgotten. Because Jesus' family lineage is full of failures, full of far-fetched people and the forgotten. And here's the thing about God and, and, and his word is this. He doesn't cover it up. He, he doesn't, God doesn't sit there and go, wow, I've got to paint my son's family lineage. I've got to paint my lineage really well because I don't want people to see the skeletons in the closet. God doesn't do that. He opens it up for all of humanity to see that the people who through generation after generation, generation, generation brought Christmas into reality. And all of these people were messed up. In fact, I even thought about that this morning as I was thinking about this message. I'm like, man, I really should have just entitled this, Look Who's Coming to Christmas, Soup Sandwiches. <laughs> because these people were messed up like soup sandwiches. And so today I want to look at the failures, the far-fetched, and the forgotten. So let me pray and, and let's dive into this thing. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that it is truth, and it's revealing, and that, Lord, you reveal to us that, Lord, these people in Jesus' genealogy, the lineage that brought Christmas into existence, Lord, they were messed up. But, Lord, I pray that this would be a, a message that, that encourages us and gives us hope. And, Lord, I pray that you would... Thank you that you didn't, you didn't disguise this. You didn't hide this. Lord, you're, you're showing the skeletons in the closet. And Lord, I just pray your blessing over this message now in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the first thing. Let's write this down. Let's first look at the failures. The first thing about our failures is this, that God's grace is greater than my failure. God's grace is greater than my failure. And I, I pray that this message... Um, because, you know, over the past several weeks as we've been going through James, that's been hard, right? And, and sometimes you can walk out of a message from James really feeling like a failure. And so I pray that this message is, is a, 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 a cup of cool water to a parched soul. Maybe you've just been feeling beat up, really just like, man, I, I'm, not, I'm just not measuring up. I pray that you can see that um, there's a lot of people in Jesus' lineage that didn't measure up. And that you can walk away feeling like, number one, I'm in good company. But number two, I'm not a lost cause. And number three, that God's grace is greater than my failure. So let's look at some of these people. And I am not teaching through all of these people, okay? Because I didn't want you to be like, oh my gosh, we're going to be here till six tonight. All right? <laughs> I'm just going to highlight different people in all three of these points. So let's highlight a few people of 
failures. So let's begin there in verse, uh, verse 1. It says, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When it talks about the son of David, the son of Abraham, it just means these were his ancestors. So in verse 2 it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the tripod, all right? The, the spiritual trinity, if you want to call it that, of the Jewish people and Christianity, okay? And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have been the, the spiritual pillars, okay? They were the spiritual forefathers. Just as Americans, we say our forefathers were George Washington and Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, people like that. We say as Christians and as Jews, our spiritual forefathers are Abraham, Je- Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. Spiritual giants, I mean, Abraham, he was considered righteous in God's eyes because, he, because God took Abraham, who was 75 years old, without any children, and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to have kids. Look at the stars. That's how many you're going to have. You're going to be such a blessed generation. You're going to be a blessed nation. And he was like, okay, let's do it. And God was like, dude, you are righteous in my eyes. He was a man of faith. Isaac was the promised child to, to, to Abraham, and, and, and he was born to Abraham, and, and he starts this thing, this spiritual line. And then you have Jacob, who becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's name is changed from Jacob to Israel. And so you have these three, and you would think, wow, God is like, he's starting on a good track with three great men. But, everybody say, but. But Abraham, Abraham was such a man of faith that when a, um, he was in the land of Canaan, the promised land with, with his wife Sarah, and, and a, a, a famine hits, he was such a man of faith, he's like, well, we got to leave this place because there's a famine. Let's go to Egypt. He goes to the one place that God's people would become prisoners in. And he goes there, and here's what he does. He takes Sarah with him, and Pharaoh's like, whoa, dude, who's you and your babe with you? And he's like, my sister. He doesn't say he's, she's my wife because he was afraid, well, if I tell Pharaoh she's my wife, he'll kill me and then take her him for himself. You see, he, 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 he falters in his faith, and then he lies. Bold-faced lie. Well, how many of you know, as a parent... Um, you can pass on the things you do to your children. See, Isaac does the same thing because when Isaac is born and he grows up, he marries Rebecca, and it says that even the Bible even says that Rebecca was beautiful. And and Isaac and Rebecca go into uh, this this area called Gerar, and and they walk in and it says the men of this place take notice of Rebecca. So um, to protect himself. Because he's like, man, these men see my wife, and they're, like, attracted to her, so they're going to kill me to take her. So they're like, well, who's the lady? My sister. <laughs> Bold-faced lie. He's so afraid of these men, and he's supposed to be a man of God, a man of faith. He lies right to these men to protect his own skin. So then you have Abraham, Isaac, and now you have Jacob. Well, Jacob, he was a cheat. And a deceiver. Just plain, just plain and simple. He cheated people, deceived people. 
but he was supposed to be this man, great man of faith. So you have three men of faith, failure, failure, failure. And then it says that Isaac, or I mean Jacob, was the father of Judah. Okay, Judah was the fourth son of the 12, of the 12 tribes of, of, of Israel. And Judah, here's his problem. I'm going to get into this in more detail later on. Uh, Judah, after his wife died, um, had a thing for prostitutes. Fornication. I mean, no, that's a problem. You're supposed to be the, the, the lion. You know, Jesus is called the lion of Judah in Revelation. He's, the, he's Judah, the lion that comes to Jesus, and he, he's got sexual problems. How about if we, we move on down the list a little bit? Let's come down to um, verse 6. Verse 5 and 6 says, It's Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, the king. David. Everybody knows David, man. He killed Goliath by just by his, his word of faith and, and believing in God and sling in a rock. He kills Goliath. He, he, he becomes the king of Israel. And, and he becomes known as a man after God's own heart. Spiritual giant, right? Wrong. Because if we look at verse 6, it says, So Jesse was the father of David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now as we in our, get into our next point, there are four women listed in the, in the genealogy. Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and Mary. But then you have this fifth woman. God doesn't call her by name. Anybody remember her name? Bathsheba. Okay? She was the wife of a general in David's army, Uriah. Well, David... If you remember the story, he sees Bathsheba bathing and um, lusts after her, calls her to his to the palace, and then sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then covers it up and has her husband sent to the front line to have him die. Now, as I started thinking about this, we say he was an adulterer and a murderer. I mean, those two are really bad to begin with. But the adultery really isn't the, the cut. I mean, that's not really what it was. It was, but it wasn't. It was assault. Because this woman did not have a choice. When he called her to him, she couldn't be like, no, I'm not doing it. She could not refuse the king. And the king says, you come to me. And he, I'm trying to keep what I say today G-rated, okay? So you all as adults need to think, okay? So he forces her to do this. That's assault. What's the other word for it? Okay? He just didn't commit adultery. He did these things to her and had her husband killed. Failure, 
major time. And then it goes on. David is the father of Solomon. Solomon was the king that was to be the wise king. I mean, he wrote the book of Proverbs, wisdom. And he was supposed to, he asked God when God says, I'll give you anything. And he's like, I want wisdom, God. And he's supposed to be the wise king, okay? And he was a very, he was the wealthiest king. He, he was the king that built the temple. And, and, and he, he, he lived for God. He served God. Until he got to be a little bit older, then his wisdom went out the window. And he became a polygamist. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Somebody should have told him, dude, one wife will be enough. <laughs> Trust me on this. You don't need two or three, more or less 700, okay? And that was his downfall. Failure. But as we keep working through the list, you're going to come down to verse 10. It says, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was a king. And there's, here's the thing. Um, right from the very get-go, when you read about Manasseh, it says, Manasseh did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, he did the most evil of all the kings before him and after him. There was no more wicked king than that of Manasseh. But yet here he is in the genealogy. He was a major failure. And you just see this through this entire list. These people who were supposed to be spiritual giants, spiritual pillars, they were, but guess what? They were also failures. Failing time after time after time. And but here's the, th the thread that weaves through all of these from Abraham to Jesus. The thread that weaves all the way through is this. It's not the commonality they had with Jesus, but the commonality they had with us. All the way through it, you see it. They had more things in common with us than with Jesus. The one thing that, but, the, but the, the big thread that runs all the way through each person is this, the grace of God. That's it. Because, because God is giving these people what they don't deserve. God could have looked at Abraham and said, dude, you lied, you're done. He could have looked at Jacob and said, Jacob, you're a deceiver, and, and I, I can't use you. You're done. He, he could have went down and said, David, man, you had it rocking, but man, you lost it in a day. You're done. He, he could have, boom, boom. He could have just went down through the list. And, but how many of you know God could have kept replacing people, and guess what? People would have kept failing. And Jesus never would have been born because people will fail. We try to walk Faithfully, we try to live faithfully. But guess what you're going to do? You're going to fail. But here's where the enemy is so good. Satan loves to take our failures and just shine the brightest light on it. And, and, and the lies and the deception just plays over and over and over in our heads. I am a failure. 
I am a failure. But the thing that we have got to keep telling ourselves is that when you hear the lie, I am a failure. I am a failure. Acknowledge it. Yes, I am a failure. But I know when my sin abounds, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, I know, though, when my sin abounds, God's grace abounds even more. And that's the promise that you and I have got to anchor ourselves to. That's the truth that you've got to listen to time and time again. Because here's the thing about these people in this list is even though they were failures, they also came back to repentance. They came back to the place. David, he should be in prison. He did some horrible stuff. But he got to the place where he had a broken heart a broken spirit before God. He finally recognized, I sinned, God, against you and you only. Because he knew the way he treated her, he missed the way he treated another person. He realized, you know what? She's made in God's image. And the way I treated her is because ultimately it's against God. And when he says, I sinned against you, God, and you alone, he realizes it's not about me or anybody. God, I'm sinning against you. Manasseh, the most wicked king ever, when he was finally, it came to the point where God had to allow the, the, the nation of Assyria to, uh, to conquer them. It says that Manasseh was, he was taken in hooks. You can read this in, in 2 Chronicles 33. He was taken away in hooks and put in chains. And when he finally, I mean, how many of you know that will get you to the, about the lowest place of your life? He got to the bottom of the barrel really quick. And he, he, when he realized in hooks and in chains, I'm a sinner. And he repented. And he confessed that God of Israel was the one true God. And God restored him as king. or He got him back to Israel. And he got... You see, these people realize, I am broken. But they also recognize God is forgiving. And you and I, when, when we are broken, when we are a failure, we need to understand that God's grace is still there. God is in the business of salvaging sinners. Okay? He's in the business of recreating those whom he created. I love what one commentator says about the genealogy of Jesus. He says, this genealogy is is marked by gross sin, blatant idolatry, captivity in Egypt, captivity in Babylon, a succession of flawed kings and hostile enemies, yet God's plan is carried out to completion. Why? Because God's grace is weaved all the way through it. You know, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says this. Paul writes, he says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's the Apostle Paul saying that. I am the worst. 
Let me ask you, don't raise your hand. Do you ever think that? I'm the worst. You just keep failing. Maybe it's the same sin. And the enemy just, you are the worst. And do you just sit there and beat yourself up? I am the worst. I am such a failure. And you just feel like, man, am I ever going to overcome this thing? Am I ever over going to overcome my flesh? The reality is on this side of heaven, we are going to be failures. But the good news is, is that Jesus died for me. He died for our sin. And the grace of God helps us in that. And we know, yes, we are going to fail. We are going to fail miserably. But if we just keep coming back, Father, forgive me. Father, I blew it again. Father, I said that what I I said that, I looked at that, I acted that way, I shouldn't have, I did it. God, forgive me. And the grace of God every single time is greater than your failure. The grace of God was greater than every one of these people's failures. And all I know is when you look at this list, there are liars on it, cheaters on it. A deceiver's on it, a murderer's on it. You, I mean, that's these, this is Jesus' genealogy, okay? This is Jesus, if he were to look back and he's like, oh, I don't want these skeletons shown. But these were the people that ushers in the first Christmas. This is Jesus' family tree. Or we could say at Christmas time, this is the first family Christmas tree, all right? This is Jesus's, this is Ancestry.com right here for Jesus. And when you and I read this, we're like, whoa, these people weren't as polished as we think. No, they were failures. And guess what you and I are, if we would just be honest? We fail. But God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace is greater than our failures. Here's the second thing. God's plans are greater than my far-fetched, than me being far-fetched. God's plans are greater than my being far-fetched. Now, when I talk about being far-fetched, I'm talking about being completely insignificant, completely unlikely, okay? Like, it's like, hey, um, I can't use that. I don't know where that would go. But if you were to look at someone, you know, at, at maybe in high school and go, that person is going to be that, you'd, and you look at that person and go, oh, that's so far-fetched, that will never happen. There's some people in this lineage like that. If you were to have said to them, oh, hey, by the way, do you know you're going to bring in the lineage? You're going to be part of the lineage and bring in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world? People would have been like, nah. It's not happening. And there are four women listed in this genealogy, which, number one, is a miraculous thing to begin with. Because you got to remember, in, in Jewish times, okay, in biblical times, it was very, like, like, almost like Muslim world today, man, male, dominant. Women were treated as second-class citizens. And the fact that women ended up in the genealogy only indicates God's plan. Okay, it has to show that God is in the middle of this thing. 
And so the first woman that we see there on the list is um, that of Tamar. So notice there in verse 3, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Now, we've got to ask, who is Tamar? Now, you can read about Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to just give you the cliff notes. And again, i got to try to make this um, G-rated, okay? And so you need to read it, and you're... You, when you read this thing, you're going to be like, are you kidding me? How in the world is this woman in this thing? So Tamar, so Tamar is actually the daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah marries a, a woman, and they have three sons, um, Ur, Onan, and, and Shelah, or something like that, Shelah, you know, weird name for a guy, but three boys. Well, Ur marries Tamar. Well, Ur dies, and Jewish custom requires the second oldest to fulfill his, his brotherly duty for his older brother by having a child on his behalf. Well, Onan's like, well, forget that. I don't want that, because if I have it, I want him to be my kid. I don't want him to be Ur's, so forget it. Well, that really made God mad, and Onan dies. So now Judah goes to Tamar and says, okay, um, would you remain a widow until Shelah grows up? So obviously there's a time gap, an age gap here, and he's obviously way too young to even marry, so he's maybe nine. And Tamar's like, okay, I can do that. Well, she gets impatient because she's like, I want to have a child. Maybe her biological clock was like, Man, I need a child. So here's what she does. She gets a plan together. She hears that Judah is out shearing sheep. And so she goes near the town where Judah is, is at, and, and she dresses up like a working woman. Adults, use your heads. I don't want to use a word where you're going home and your daughter or your son's like, what was that name that, that Pastor Jim was talking about? What is that? And you're like, uh. Use your, use your heads here. So she dresses up like a working woman, and Judah comes into town. And now remember what I said about Judah earlier? He sees um, Tamar, but he doesn't know she's he, her. He just sees her dressed up like a working woman, takes her away. Okay, blah, blah, yada, yada. She gets pregnant. Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant and he's going to have her killed because she's broken her promise to him. And well, the thing is, when, all the, when the transaction took place, she's like, hey, give me something of yours because she was thinking outside the box here. She's like, give me something of yours. So when it came to that he was going to have her killed, he, she's like, whoa, where did I get this? And Judah's like, oh, no. And Judah finally, he puts all the piece, puzzle pieces together and he's like, Okay, I, you read this story, it sounds more like a soap opera because there's lies, deception. Um, yeah, outside of marriage, all kinds of stuff going on here, all right? Tamar, the most unlikely person who should be in this thing, but guess where she's at? In 
this line. Which only indicates one thing. God's plan was greater than her. Okay? Go down to the next one. In verse 5, it says, and I call him Salmon. I don't think it's that Salmon or something like that, but Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab is the second unlikely who should be even in this lineage. Rahab, you have to go back to the book of Joshua. And this is, this is with, with the account of Jericho. When God told Joshua, hey, it's time to go in and, and conquer Jericho. And he sends spies into the city to spy it out. So that way they could tell Joshua what's going on. So the two spies go in and they meet up with another working woman. Okay, So number one reason why Rahab should be the unlikely pick here is because she was a working woman. All right. Number two was that she wasn't a Jew. She was part of Jericho, the family, the people of Jericho. So they were a pagan people, Canaanites. They, they, they worshiped false gods. They, they were idolaters. And, and, and so she would have been part of these people. They were the enemies of Israel. Okay, So when the, the, the spies sought her out and was talking with her, she said to them, we have heard about your God. We've heard about what has been happening with you guys, and you're in our backyard, and we know what's about to happen. She's like, I began to trust in your God, and I believe he is the God of heaven. And, 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 and I, here's what I'm asking. I'm going to hide you. I'm going to lie to the king, and I'm going to deceive him to get you guys out of here. So here's who they're talking to, a woman who's, you know, I mean, her, her, her job is to be a working woman. So she's got to be good at lying and deceiving. How likely should this woman be in this thing? But yet God, but yet God tells Joshua, hey, um, save her. Her and her family were saved when Jericho was destroyed. And she gets married to a Jewish man and gives birth to a guy by the name of Boaz. And that's important because of the next woman listed. And her name was Ruth. And you can read about Ruth in the book of Ruth. Now, here's why this is significant. I know, isn't that like, no way. Are you kidding me? There's a book called Ruth, and the, name, the main character is Ruth? Yes, it is. Unbelievable. It's not Joanna, all right? So, so Ruth, and, and, and this is why Ruth is so unlikely. Ruth was not a Jew. Ruth was part of a group of people called Moabites, she was, she was from this, a place called Moab, and the Moabites were actually enemies of the Jews. And the Jewish people hated the Moabites and wanted nothing to do with the Moabites. So, so Ruth ends up in Israel, and she's in a field, and she meets this guy by the name of Boaz. A Moabite woman meets a Jewish man by the name of, of Moab, and somehow God says, I'm going to bring them together. And there's a romance and a marriage between a Moabite, a non-Jew, a Gentile, and a Jewish man, which should never happen because the law of God forbids it. But yet, here they are. And... 
and they start having children. But yet here she is in the lineage. One of the most unlikely people ends up in the lineage. And then when you work all, your, all, the, way, all the way down, you're going to come to the fourth woman. Her name is Mary. Now, if Mary would have been in the, the, the high school yearbook and you had her picture and, you know, everybody else is, hey, most likely to succeed, most likely to go to, you know, this university. Most, Mary would not have been the most likely to bring the Savior into the world. Would not have happened. Because, you see, Mary, um, here's how unlikely Mary is in this thing. Number one, she was very young probably about 13 or 14, okay? And um, she came from a poor family. And she came from a poor town, Nazareth. Nazareth was actually very, look, the people of Nazareth and the town of Nazareth was looked down by the Jewish people. Because if you go to the book of John, when um, Philip met Christ, and then Philip went to go tell Nathaniel about Jesus. He goes, hey, I found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? What can good can come out of Nazareth? Because he was a Jewish man going, man, Nazareth, that's the armpit of Israel. Forget that. That's where Mary's from. So how the likelihood, why did, why did God not like, no, 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 I need to find the popular girl. I need to find the, the rich girl. No, he finds a very young virgin, a very poor girl from the armpit of Israel. And he's like, that's who I'm going to use. Likely or unlikely? Unlikely. So far-fetched that nobody would have believed it. But yet, here all four of these women are. In the lineage, in the genealogy, in the Christmas tree of Jesus. You see, I think for us, sometimes we get bent out of shape thinking, how can God use me? What we do is we equate God's likeliness of doing something in me and through me based on who I am. We look at who I am, what I have, what I can do, where I'm from, how much money I have, how much education, what kind of job. And we put all this stuff together and like, no, it's too unlikely. If I had more education, maybe God could use me better. If I had more money, wow, I could really give in and, and I can make a difference. If I, if, if I had this or if I was like this, man, God could do... No, no, no. How, you may be the most unlikely person around everybody, but God can look at you and go, man, I really want to do something in them. Because God's plans are greater than you being far-fetched. Your unlikeliness, people may look at, look at you and go, too unlikely. They're too insignificant. This story is not in my, in my notes, but I got to tell it because I think it's, it, it's, it's perfect. When I took over as pastor, the founding pastor of this church, he was here for five years, left and went down to Decatur. And he took over a church and it was, you know, he, he, it, it grew to two or two 2,500 people, big church, the whole nine yards. So when I took over the, as pastor, Paul and I went down to talk with him one day. And we went, just wanted to get some advice. And, you know, because this was new to me. I didn't know where I, how to do this thing. So we went down to talk to him. And, and Paula was talking about worship and, and making, writing music and stuff like that. Here's what he told us. He says, um, 
God can't use Harvest Woodhall, or not Harvest at that time, use Faith Christian Church of Woodhall to do something like that. He says God won't use or won't waste his gifts on something that small. He has to use something bigger to make an impact. Paul and I walked out of that and like, that was a bunch of junk. I'm like, dude, read your Bible then. Because God uses the unlikely. Now, have, have we written songs? No. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't mean that God doesn't use the unlikely, the insignificant, the small, the unworthy. He uses those things, and he proves it with four different people. Even King David, before he was King David, he was a nobody, a little shepherd boy out in the field, and he did miraculous things through this little shepherd boy. All it takes is someone to say, God, I don't have a lot. It's like the little boy with a few fish and a, a bag of lunch. He was just like, he's like, Mom, I'm going. I got my bag of lunch. And he shows up and Jesus is like, dude, can I borrow your bag of lunch? Because I got a lot of people to feed. Okay. You see, God just is looking for someone who is willing to take what they have and just give it to them. God, if you can use me to witness someone up to where I, I, I really don't know a lot, but if you can use me to witness to someone at work, I, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. God, I don't have a lot for ministry, but, but I'm, I'm available. So if you could do something through me, I, I, that'd be great. God just needs someone who, like in the first point, who just has a repentant heart. In the second point, who just has a giving spirit. God, here it is. I, whatever it is, I had, you take it. And then, God, whatever you want to do, God and his plans, his work can be done and accomplished through you despite who you are because it's greater than you being far-fetched. You may think you're insignificant. Your family may think you're insignificant. Your best friends may think you're insignificant. Everybody you come in contact with may think you are insignificant and unlikely to do anything, but not God, if you can believe him to do it. And then the last thing, here's the third thing. God's love is greater than my being forgotten. God's love is greater than my being forgotten. Now, a lot of these people in this list are people we know. But there are some people in this list that, uh, who are they? Like, for example, in verse 3, we have a couple guys by the name of Hezron and Ram. Ram had a truck named after him, but other than that, we know nothing about this dude. All right? You know, when you get to David, it works through all the names of the kings. But even some of the kings, when you read the book of First Kings, they're just like, so-and-so was the king of Judah, and there's like three lines about him. Not a famous king. But then when you get to verse 12, after the, the 70 years in Babylon, and they're coming back to Israel, look at some of these people. Jeconiah, Shetilo, Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, Azar, Zadok. Who are these people? Zadok, that sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, all right? 
I mean, who are these people? Outside of this, we have no idea. None. Not a blip, not a, nothing. Forgotten. But here they are in the genealogy of Jesus. You know, even when you get down to Mary, the birth of Jesus, Joseph. Think about this for a moment. Joseph is nothing more than a blip on the radar. Mary gets it all. She gets all the songs at Christmas. She gets the worship. She gets the statues. Mary gets it all. But where's Joseph? Once you get past pretty much the beginning of Jesus' early years of Jesus' life, you hear nothing of, Moses, or of, of Joseph's except for when Jesus was making people mad. What do you mean? Isn't that like the carpenter's son? And that's it. Joseph isn't, I, I, read, I read this week in a commentary that there is like, I think, one um, Christmas hymn that mentions Joseph, but sometimes it's even taken out. Why would they do that? Poor Joe, man. Eh, he doesn't need to be in the Christmas hymn this year. Take him out. But put Mary in there. Forgotten. Just forgotten. How easy is it to feel forgotten? You know, maybe you've grown up in a family. They just wrote you off. You know, maybe, maybe you grew up in a family that your mom and dad abandoned you. Maybe you've been abandoned by a spouse, friends, and you just feel forgotten. And sometimes we can equate that and we, we connect that to God. And we can feel abandoned by God. We can feel God has written us off. God has no interest in me. He's interested in everybody else because they, they're doing something. They're, they, they got it going on, but not me. I'm a failure. I'm insignificant. And I know God doesn't care about me. Here's the thing. Whether you, first of all, if, even if as an unbeliever, God still thinks about you. For God so loved the world. If you are an unbeliever, he loves you. He loves you to send his son to die for you. He knows you. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, the book of Isaiah tells us that you have been engraved on his palm. In the book of Psalm, chapter 139, verses 17 and 18, David writes, he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am with you. You are on God's thoughts constantly. Man, but the world's out of control. God, God's got a lot on his plate. He knows you personally. He's thinking about you right now. With 7 billion people on the planet Earth, guess what? You are still singled out to him. And you've got to get that. You've got to understand that. God loves you. And God's love runs through this genealogy. And God's love for you is greater than what you, how you feel forgotten. People may have forgotten you. Your parents may forget you. Your, 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 your friends may have abandoned you, but not God. 
God has never abandoned you, never will abandon you, because he sent his son to be born in a manger to create the first Christmas ever so you can have life in him. And when you know Christ as your savior, you're never forgotten, never abandoned, never forsaken. Jesus says, never will I forget you, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You are his. Let me just close with this final thought. Understand that no matter how great your sin is, no matter how many times you fail, God's grace is greater. No matter how insignificant you think, no matter how unlikely people have said, you will never amount to anything. God's plans are greater than that. And no matter how great and how much you think you feel forgotten, your, your family, your friends, a spouse, no matter who it is, God's love for you is greater than your abandonment. It's greater than you being forgotten. But the question that you've got to ask is, am I willing to just give it to God? Are you willing to give your failure to God in, in, in confession? Are you willing to give up that, that insecurity, the insignificance, the, the unlikeliness of what everybody else has told you and just say, God, I don't have much to give, but here it is. Are you willing to accept what the Bible has to say about the love of God for you? And to realize, man, if God loves me, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks and feels about me. As long as I know God loves me, I'm in a good place. You know, Christmas time is almost like a love and hate time. Man, we love it. We love the, the decorations and, and, and the lighting and just the feel of it, man. But a lot of people hate it. And maybe you're one of those people that come Christmas time, you're just like, I don't get over, I, don't, I just don't get thrilled about it because it just brings up way too many things for me, too many bad emotions, too many whatever it is. And maybe this Christmas, maybe you just need to come to that place where you're just like, Jesus, here it is. I'm going to believe what you say about me. I'm going to believe what you think about me. I'm going to believe what you feel about me, Lord, no matter what else, everything else is saying. I'm going to believe what you have to say. And I'm telling you, his grace is greater than your failure. His plans are greater than your far-fetched. And his love is greater than you being forgotten. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's get ready to close.